At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. I think that we run into a lot of that problem in the DOD with the crawl, walk, run kind of mentality because there's nothing in there about validation, you know, or, or even that we're making assumptions. The assumption is that we're right. In fact, our entire defense acquisition system and really the entire defense industrial complex, including our war plans, are optimized for being right. You know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And like <laughs> in this fast moving ecosystem, you don't just get punched in the mouth when the conflict starts. You're getting punched in the mouth all day, every day. And you have to be able to sense and respond to that quickly. And so the the on their face, they seem the same. But when you dig into the literature under the, the two philosophies um, is very different in terms of that kind of activities that people engage in. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Great episode ahead today with Brian Kroger, the co-founder of U.S. Air Force's Kessel Run program and now the CEO over at Rise 8. After years of serving in the U.S. Air Force as an intel officer, Brian noticed a major infrastructure problem across the entire DOD, bad software. Instead of having the most advanced, cutting-edge technology, as displayed in military movies and TV shows, the defense community was relying upon software that really lags far behind what's available in the civilian sector, despite the cost of failure being exponentially higher. He didn't plan on going head-to-head with one of the biggest arms of the U.S. government, but he knew better technology needed to be in place so fewer bad things happen due to bad software. In response to this, he co-founded the DOD's first software factory, Kessel Run, Brian's team taught the government how to produce in just weeks what they previously spent five years to produce. His first initiative paid for itself inside of a week, saving the Pentagon over $214,000 per day. As he continued attempting to advance the military's technology from the inside, he hit ceilings in technology, bureaucracy, and leadership. He then decided it was time to leave the military and take on the world's largest bureaucracy from the outside as a civilian. Brian's been able to make a huge difference in public sector technology transformations, and he's just getting started. Today, we're going to talk about how the Kessel Run program originated, how the program has influenced government as a whole, and what he sees for the future. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today, buddy. Thanks for having me. So, Brian, you're, you're based down in Tampa. I know you guys just had, uh, had a good amount of weather in the form of a hurricane. How did all that look for you? Uh, it was looking looking pretty rough for a minute there, but uh, it ended up turning pretty far south of us. So um, we were we were spared a lot of the the major damage, just winds and a lot of rain. So 
Nice. I, I saw that kind of pivot a little bit more south. I have a buddy that lives down there too, and I saw him kind of board up. I mean, he it almost uh, he's had these like metal shutters that come down. It's crazy. I haven't seen anything like that. It almost looked like that scene from I Am Legend when he's when he's boarding up his house. So you guys take that weather pretty seriously down in Florida. Yeah, yeah. I have those on my house as well. But it's a good note for listeners. I feel like it hasn't gotten as much attention as I normally see with uh, disaster recovery efforts. But I mean, south of us got wrecked. So, um, you know, there's there's a lot you could do to, to donate and, and help the cause. But uh, the people down there need a lot of help. That's a good point. I mean, some of the some of the images I saw, obviously a pivoting. And I think the pivot, some of the people further south didn't really expect it. So some of them were probably a, a lot less prepared than maybe you were. So um, that's a, I think that's a really good point. We can all kind of do our part. So, so let me ask you this. I mean, we're going to get into a bunch of topics today. I mentioned um, at the top that you are the uh, co-founder and, and COO or former co-founder and COO of, of Kessel Run. But even before that, what led you to kind of serve, serve our country in the Air Force? What, what kind of got you to enlist in the Air Force? Yeah, I've got uh, quite a bit of family that have done Army, Air Force, um, you know, my brother, he uh, retired as a master sergeant along with his wife, uh, senior master sergeant. And um, when I finished college, I didn't do ROTC or any of that. I actually finished college and then went to OTS. Um, but I just had a, an intense calling to serve. Um, and uh, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So I signed up. I actually became a, an intelligence officer. Um, and I spent my first seven years before Kessel Run as a, a targeting officer. I did all targeting assignments. So what kind of got you into the whole kind of software development aspect that you're kind of uh, entrenched in right now? Yes, yeah, so it was uh, it was my time as a targeting officer. I used to joke, you know, uh, everybody, I'm from a small town in Iowa and uh, people thought I was like going to become a spy or something when they found out I was becoming an intelligence officer, but it's nothing like the movies, right? You, you walk into your offices, like stepping back into time and not just a little bit, but like into the 1980s. Um, and so for me, it was, there was a lot of building frustration over those first seven years kind of came to a head when I, my last duty assignment as an Intel officer was at CENTCOM headquarters, um, did a lot of the, you know, war on terror stuff as a, as a targeteer, um, not only for Afghanistan and what was going on there, but then also that was when, uh, you know, ISIS popped off and, and we were in Syria and Iraq as well. And uh, I just felt like, you know, we, we've got these, I mean, the, the most advanced hardware in, in the world, n- no doubt about it. Um, but then we're back in the operations center using probably some of the worst software in the world. And I saw bad things happen, right? You, you see, um, you know, uh, things go wrong in strikes. You see bad guys get away. You see uh, troops in contact that we, you know, can't help. Uh, and a lot of it's because we're operating at machine speed uh, from a warfare perspective, but most most of our software is still operating at human speed, meaning it's uh, really just humans behind there. And um, that kind of came to a head for me as seeing the Kunduz hospital incident when we, we struck a Doctors Without Borders outpost. That was when I actually decided to uh, hang up my Intel badge and apply to become an acquisitions officer. And I pulled quite a few strings to get assigned to the targeting program office uh, that had just started at Hanscom Air Force Base. And the day I showed up is the day I showed DI, uh, called DIUX, talked to Enrique Odi, uh, and the rest is kind of history from there, uh, building up into Kessel Run. And, and, and I, kind of a good segue into Kessel Run, and, and you mentioned the movies. I, I've seen you kind of talk about uh, kind of juxtaposing what reality looks like versus what you see in the movies. In the movies... Uh, software, hardware, everything is state of the art and, and everything's working just like it's supposed to. And you kind of mentioned 
it just wasn't that way in real life. And you kind of touched on it there. Um, can you, for those that aren't as familiar with the Kessel Run program, can you kind of give just a quick overview of the program and how it kind of kicked off? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's a lot, a lot of really great timing and a lot of the right people in the right place uh, at the same time. But you had uh, Enrique Odi was out at DIUX. It had just start, started up. He was actually the first person for the Air Force element out there at DIUX. Uh, and he took some money and ran an experiment um, building software primarily with, uh, and he could tell his side of the story better than me, but I think it's an important one. He he called, He put out a call to his network um, to send anybody that knew how to do software development in the Air Force, um, brought them out to Silicon Valley and paired directly with a company called Pivotal Labs to build some software. Uh, they initially decided to build Air Operations Center software. Um, and uh, famously, they were building a planning tool, which probably never would have worked. Uh, you know, it's one of those hindsight things. Um, but uh, Eric Schmidt goes out to the Air Operations Center, sees the whiteboard that they plan tankers on, and Enrique gets a call from Raj Shah, the um, DIUX director at the time, and said, hey, I want you to stop what you're building and build this tool instead. Uh, and so that was at the same time that I was working with Colonel Odie to stand up. Um, you know, if you're not familiar with the way DIUX works, uh, they have customers, other military customers, who come to them. Uh, they help connect them with innovative tech in Silicon Valley or elsewhere uh, and get the contract in place and then they kind of leave, right? And so this thing Enrique was doing was a little bit you know, out there in terms of he was running an experiment kind of on his own, but at the same time working with us to stand up and other transaction authority uh, to help with joint targeting. Um, now that initial prototype that he did being part of the AOC, being very successful, that was at the same time that the AOC program, which was 10 years on, had spent uh, something like $500 million and really hadn't delivered a single thing, literally had not delivered a single thing to the field. Um, in fact, funny story on that later when, when it, the program did get canceled and we were like, well, what can we salvage from this program? We asked the incumbent, like, hey, is there anything uh, that we can salvage here? Like, there's got to be some working software. And they really didn't have anything uh, that was usable. But um, so John McCain famously defunded the program, right? It's pretty hard to cancel a program, but he defunded it, uh, and held the, the funds hostage, uh, until they came up with a, a new strategy. And so, um, there's just a lot of coming together of Air Force acquisitions leadership, Hanscom Air Force Base, PEO, uh, now PEO Digital, uh, and DIUX to say, all right, we figured out how to build one app this way. Can we build the whole AOC this way? Uh, and we had the contract vehicle that we had been building, uh, to uh, make turn that prototype into a reality, and the AOC was able to jump on board. We rapidly expanded it, and before you know it, we were, you know, operating uh, five teams, and then ten more, and then fifteen more. You know, we we're up to about 25, 26 teams at one point building software for the Air Operations Center. So, full disclosure, I'm not a huge Star Wars guy. Not a, but I, I do. I when I was going through my due diligence a few years ago, when I was when I was working with the Cus One program. Um, obviously was curious about the name. There has to be a story behind how Kessel Run evolved, right? From a name pers name perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when, um, like I said, we, we had that vehicle going with DIUX and when AOC jumped on board, we had this big meeting out in uh, San Francisco. Um, and so generally I would say like the, the three co-founders, um, there's a lot of founding members, but the three co-founders generally would be like Enrique Odi, myself, and Lieutenant Colonel Sanders. 
who is the AOC um, program management office uh, material leader. Uh, we came out to Silicon Valley with our teams uh, and we came up with this new acquisition strategy. And then Enrique was like, every good project needs a name. Uh, so, uh, you know, agile ceremony, we put a bunch of name ideas on sticky notes, put them up on the board and dot voted them. And Kessel runs the winner. I actually have a photo of that. I've, I've shared it a few times. Uh, we ended up framing it and keeping it at Kessel Run, but um, the uh, kind of idea behind it um, was that uh, it, the Kessel Run is a spice smuggling route um, to the planet Kessel in the Star Wars trilogy, and uh, the idea was that we were going to have to smuggle DevOps into the DoD in order to make this work. So that was kind of our, our little play on it after the fact, and uh, you know, then of course there's a twelve parsecs reference, which is a measure of distance, not time. Um, so it doesn't work as well when you're trying to talk about velocity, but, um, you know, we said we were going to do it in 12 parsecs or less. So there had to be some challenges getting this program off the ground. I mean, the way you told the story, it seemed like it was, it was pretty clean, but I would imagine anytime you're trying to implement new ways of doing things, especially from a DevOps agile perspective in government, um, and in implement influencing technology, there's obviously hiccups. So what were some of those challenges that you guys faced getting this whole program off the ground? Yeah, it was oh, so many. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. We were always just like, I felt like we were often hours away from uh, being killed as a program. Um, you know, in the, in the early time period, actually that meeting was interesting in and of itself because, you know, I was working with Enrique willingly to stand up a, a targeting program. Um, uh, using this same OTA, the same Kessel Run style of development, never would have been as big. We didn't have nearly the budget that AOC had, right? So it was great. You think, oh, you, you get an extra, you know, hundred plus million dollars from the AOC program, but that's actually really difficult because they didn't necessarily come along willingly. Uh, you know, there's people that have been working on this program for ten years, maybe even more, because there was, you know, like pre work involved, um, and they were essentially defunded and forced to go this route. No, there were some people that came along willingly, other people who, you know, I, uh, I don't know if you've heard the phrase, there's no zealot like a convert, um, but we had some really great converts. In fact, I would think one of the biggest of all and one of our most important allies became Lieutenant Colonel Sanders. And I don't think we'd have Kessel Run without him, but in those early days, it was certainly challenging. Um, I had spent, oh, you know, like a year while I was still in targeting and then, you know, the six months leading up to that contract at Hanscom, uh, really understanding this, building out a strategy for this targeting portfolio that I was part of. And these folks got brought on. We basically had three days to figure out a strategy. Um, and then, you know, even once, so that meeting in Silicon Valley where we came up with the name, the next day we had our outbrief to the uh, acting secretary um, for acquisitions. Um, it was Ms. Costello at the time, and I believe uh, now retired General Bender. And uh, we, you know, that part seemed really easy, right? They were, they were super on board. They became huge champions and sponsors. Uh, but even once they said yes, you know, the next thing was getting the money, right? So it, everybody wanted to do it, but it's literally an act of Congress to get money moved around and, uh, or several acts in this case. And so we basically had to had to stop. We had to figure out where to pull funding from. So that was like one of the first disasters that happened. And we scrounged by for a few months. There was also when we were going from the DIUX prototype contract to a production contract. That was about the time. I don't know if you remember, but uh, DIUX was in hot water over an award to RainCloud. Um, 
it was kind of during the whole Jedi debacle and mm-hmm. people saw that as a way as like a proxy to get to, which it wasn't, but a proxy to get to AWS. Um, and so it was the first production OTA that got challenged and it, it got thrown out. Right. And so everybody was scared. And so they actually, DIUX leadership at the time wanted us to do what would have amounted to a four month stop work uh, on this program that we had going. And so, um, you know, we, we had to get our own authorities in the Air Force uh, and we awarded the first production OT. But there's just story after story like that that I, I could give where like our program was just days away from being killed uh, and we had to pull it through at the last minute. And then all along the way, people are fighting you over super st- stupid stuff. I, I posted on LinkedIn about how we came up with our name, but people were really shocked in that story how uh, like we were ordered by our leadership to stop using the name Kessel Run and uh, I had just, when I got that order, I had just put in a huge order of t-shirts and hoodies. Uh, so I just like ignored the order <laughs> and, and kept rolling with the name, right? Pretend, but, it, pretend that never came down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everything from, you know, our name and our stickers and our hoodies to, you know, very significant aspects of our acquisition strategy. Uh, it was, every day was, was a challenge and you're just trying to create enough space for the people building the software to build the next most valuable thing, get it out the door. And then leverage that, you know, fanfare from the user base to keep the project going. From a contracts perspective, you talked about going from basically the 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 sandbox environment, right, or the incubation stage into full on production. But what was that like getting it to completely shift the culture, right, of accepting a program that isn't just out there incubating things from a theoretical perspective, but the whole idea is to develop this, get it out the door and move on to the next thing. How did you kind of assimilate that culture of Kessel Run into the partners that you worked with within the Air Force? Yeah, so... I think we were very fortunate that we we found Pivotal Labs and and, and credit to Enrique for for finding them um, or DIUX really. I think they and and I've mimicked this actually with my business model at Rise8. They have this incredible way of approaching culture change, uh, which we then later applied to the other contract partners because there's way more than just the you know one DIUX OTA contract with Pivotal. At one time, we had like 12 active contracts before I left. I think Kessel Run might have more than that now. Um, and so their model, uh, it actually draws in an analogy that I always reference for people, which is the story of Numi, joint venture between Toyota and uh, GM. And uh, it's a really incredible story. Toyota wanted to enter the American market, and they decided to do a joint venture with GM in order to do that. And GM gave them their worst performing plant for this joint venture. It was so bad that they had actually just shut down the plant. People were drinking and gambling on the job. Um, they were sabotaging vehicles, like sealing up Coke bottles and doors so it would rattle when you purchased the vehicle, which you would generally describe as an awful culture, right? And uh, Toyota, GM offered Toyota, like, hey, you know, we'll, uh, we'll help you take on the union so we can get new employees. And Toyota said that wouldn't be necessary. And they took... Um, leaders, managers, and some frontline employees out to Toyota in Japan and put them into the Toyota production system, those people came back and trained uh, people at the Numi factory. And within a few months, a few months is the highest performing plant in the United States. Same people, same people that were drinking and gambling on the job, sabotaging vehicles. This is like the most unbelievable story of, of culture change. And when you look at what Toyota does, unlike the military and the government in general, right, we give people computer-based training about culture and values. 
like, oh, you know, don't sexually assault people and we give them like a long computer-based training about that. Um, everything from that to like how to do DevOps and Agile, right? And then we send them to Agile certification courses, et cetera. That's not how you change culture. What Toyota shows is, you know, they basically just said, hey, come and work with us in a different way. And when you see the results of working in a different way, that will change your values, your attitudes, your beliefs, and that will change the culture. Um, it's culture transformation through doing. And so Pivotal has the same model with DevOps. It's like, hey, come and build real working software for a real user to solve a real problem. And we're going to ship it to a real operations environment. And when you see the results of working this way, it will change your culture. It'll change everybody's values and attitudes and beliefs. And so um, that's something that we do at Rise 8 now as well. And it's just super powerful in, you know, we, we, the government learned that way and then transferred that to a bunch of defense contractors, uh, which in a way, like normally the defense contractors are leading us, but at Kessel Run, we were leading these defense contractors and their employees towards new ways of working. Um, so that, that was a big part of it. And I will say too, even when we were in the prototype phase, it's worth noting, we were in a prototype phase from a contractual perspective, um, but we were shipping that software to prod. Like even in the early, even the experiment Colonel Odie did, they built a brand new application and shipped it to IUD Air Base in Qatar in 120 days. So I think something that that is also left out of that story is that the culture that you guys build at Kessel Run, I think, has proliferated into the entire DoD, not just the Air Force. You see software factories popping up. I had I had Hannah Hunt on the show a little bit ago um, talking about what they're doing at Army's Future Command in the Army Software Factory. Do you think? Obviously, the success of Kessel Run, it was successful and it still is successful. Do you think that has really um, been one of the impetuses for these software factories popping up? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think, you know, there's there's also a lot that we didn't get right at Kessel Run. And so it's always refreshing to see folks like Hannah go start the next one or um, Carlo uh, Vare, who I, now works at Rise 8, but uh he was one of my first product managers at Kessel Run, one of the most successful products that we had, if not the most successful product we had there. Uh, he and my platform lead, Davis Gunter, went and started a DevOps organization called Section 31, which is part of Kobayashi Maru and the Space Force. And each one of these, you know, they they run into a lot of the same challenges. Some are insurmountable and like some of these software factories are going to get killed off, right? It's just like, the bureaucracy is is out to get you. The empire strikes back, as it as it turns out. But um, I'm so impressed watching them, watching Hannah uh, take what we did and make it so much better. Uh, I do think that some of the proliferation is like you know the unfortunate thing that we created was like a hype cycle, and so you know there are some really good ones like Army Software Factory, Section 31, Bespin. I mean, I could keep going. There's a whole handful of them, but there's also a lot that are like two teams that aren't really delivering anything to warfighters, but they call themselves a software factory and, and like, you know, marketed on LinkedIn and um, people are glad to accept because it, you know, makes all the programs that they're associated look, look better. So that part's a little unfortunate. I think we have a long ways to go in terms of measuring the real outcomes of these software factories and, and like understanding their uh, individual uh, value propositions um, because there's also another problem that people want to combine them all and like that makes about as much sense as combining, you know, I don't know, McDonald's and and Olive Garden. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they both make food. It's like, well, great, but like very different kinds of food. Completely different missions, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, right. 
So, and one of the things for you, when we talked about culture and, and kind of how you're delivering some of these things, I like how you, you coined it. You say, think big, start small. The other kind of thing that comes to mind is I generally like to say crawl, walk, run, same kind of idea, right? Where you see the mission or you see the outcome you're trying to get to, which is I want to run, but we got to start crawling first to get there. But you can think, you can think, think large there. Why is it so important to, to follow this, this think big, start small? Why does it drive so much success? Yeah, I think, um, you know, most of the DOD for a long time, uh, like when I showed up at Hanscom and, and throughout my military career, I would hear the crawl, walk, run thing. And I know what you mean and what other innovators mean when they say it, but for everybody else, it's just an excuse to crawl, which, which is like, oh yeah, we're going slow because we crawl first and then we're yeah. going to walk and it's still going to be slow. And then, no, it's like run, run, run. Um, but like, I'm in a sprint right now. I can only sprint for 20 yards and then I'll do 40, then I'll do 80. And the think big, start small scale fast. The, the nice thing about that is, you know, all of the material that it draws on, which primarily comes from, uh, you know, Eric Reese and the lean startup community, but, um, certainly in, in that entire startup ecosystem is this idea that you go really fast right from the beginning. Right. And the thing that you're always trying to do uh, is test your riskiest assumptions. So, you know, there's there's always this classic juxtaposition um, of uh, there was a grocery store in the dot com era that wanted to do online grocery delivery, uh, and they didn't validate anything. Right, this is the dot com. Like, there's money everywhere. They built out full on warehouses, got trucks. You know, massive capital investment. And it turned out that nobody wanted to buy groceries online. Of course, they were maybe a little bit ahead of their time. But at that time, people didn't want to buy groceries online. Zappos is the you know exact opposite of that. He was like, I wonder if people will buy shoes online. So he went to Foot Locker, took pictures of shoes, uh, posted those pictures online. And then when people bought them, he went to Foot Locker, bought them, and shipped them to them, right? Uh, he, he wasn't trying to sell shoes at first. He was trying to validate his, his hypothesis. And um, I think that we run into a lot of that problem in the DOD with um, the crawl, walk, run kind of mentality because uh, the, there's nothing in there about validation, you know, or, or even that we're making assumptions. The assumption is that we're right. In fact, our entire defense acquisition system and really the entire defense industrial complex, including our war plans, are optimized for being right. You know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And like mm -hmm. in this fast moving ecosystem, you don't just get punched in the mouth when the conflict starts, you're getting punched in the mouth all day, every day, and you have to be able to sense and respond to that quickly. And so, um, you know, the, the, on their face, they seem the same, but when you dig into the literature under the, the two philosophies, um, is very different in terms of that kind of activities that people engage in. So, um, you know, think big because. Uh, thinking small is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think Be Bezos said that. Um, but then really starting with the smallest increment or unit of value that you can and figuring out how you can provide value. Um, and and once people accept that value, then you you add on to it. Well, I think the validation piece is, is really important. And I think that's something that, that gets lost. And it's really interesting that kind of the viewpoint that it's everything is kind of built around the premise that we're right. But... When I think crawl, walk, run, the other aspect of it that I think is important to to bring out is having small pieces of success that mm -hmm. you start to 
build momentum. You often have times where you start, you say, Hey, we need to, we need to start running. So you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get on the treadmill and I'm gonna press 10 and just start running. And when you realize you can't run for a long period of time, you're like, well, I'm getting nowhere. This is frustrating. Instead of building up to that and then you start to gain that momentum. So I think there's there's pieces of that, but I, I think that I, I like the think big aspect of it because you're absolutely right. If you think small, it does become that self-fulfilling prophecy. You're you're not gonna hit a goal that you need to be hitting. So it makes total sense. Um, let me ask you this. So at the top of the show, I mentioned you're also the founder and CEO of Rise 8, and you've mentioned Rise 8 a couple times. What ultimately led to your decision of, of getting out of the Air Force and starting Rise 8? Yeah, so I was actually on an acquisition Intel exchange. So um, there was probably a chance given the uh, you know fanfare and connections we had built up that I, I could have made that more permanent. But um, even with that, you know, the Air Force was talking to me about how I missed my 04 leadership opportunities and all these things. It, it, to me, I just wanted to keep building software and not just keep building software, but, you know, I, I was the deputy at Kessel Run. I was running a 500 person organization. And then when the Air Force looks at where to send me next, they're like, oh, well, you know, you're a captain. You're about to pin on a major. Well, you know, it, it, and I really felt like the Air Force was not going to utilize my talent. Uh, and, and, and I, you know, that I had built up over the, this time at Kessel run. And so, um, there was that combined with everybody was coming to Kessel run. We put on this thing called, uh, enablement days. They still do it. Actually. I highly recommend if folks are interested in Kessel run, they attend, uh, I think they still call it enablement day. Um, but we would basically host visitors once a month. Uh, to come through and learn about Kessel Run, how we did what we did. And we would give them our playbooks and everything if they were government folks. And um, nobody was recreating the Kessel Run, right? And I would say even still to this day, you've got a couple notable examples, but not nearly as many as we should. Like every software program in the DoD could do this. So the fact that we are still dancing around the edges of like less than 1% of DoD's total software spend is super frustrating to me. Is that, is that risk aversion? Um. I think, uh, let's go with like maybe change aversion because doing things the Kessel runway is, is less risk, um, than the way we do business today. Um, I always emphasize that even things like continuous ATO, which was a poor name on my choice. I, I came up with that name, uh, when we invented continuous ATO and I probably shouldn't have really about continuous RMF, which is about continuously reducing risk. Um, so I would say everything about Kessel Run reduces risk. The risky way to do things was 10.1, which was Kessel Run was born out of AOC 10.1, right? Let's build and build and build for 10 years and spend $500 million without product validation. That's risk. So it's not risk aversion. It's change aversion to a degree. Um, but there's a, you know, a massive incentive structure built around that. Um, you're not going to get fired for failing um, by doing things the way everybody else does them. Even though it's almost guaranteed that you're going to fail, you can have a $500 million failure and it's like, well, you did all the things that you were supposed to do. But if you try something different, even if you're like marginally successful, uh, you'll probably get punished uh, as compared to your peers. So I would say the incentive structures is one of the bigger problems holding us back and, and a, like a, to a certain degree, a skills barrier as well. Um, but you know, to get back to the the thing about Kessel Run, what I was noticing is on the industry side of this equation. On the one hand, I always like to defend industry a little bit, even though coming into it, I was like, "Oh, blame all the defense contractors." I realized they're just a reflection of the government. 
right? Like we get exactly what we ask for. Uh, we get exactly what we pay for. And so, um, but that said, that doesn't mean that you can't be a defense contractor that says, I don't really care about all of that. Uh, I'm going to put purpose over profits and I'm going to do this the right way. And I found a few of those in the industry, but not nearly enough. And there was a big gap for what I described earlier, which was this model of culture change through doing, pairing with airmen, soldiers, sailors, Marines, guardians uh, to ship code, upskill them while doing it, transform their culture while doing it. And uh, so I started Rise 8 with that mindset of like, I want to transform the way that organizations build and deliver software. And then really focused on, you know, we, we exist to drive relentless progress by delivering critical outcomes to prod. So none of this like, hey, we're going to celebrate that we did five sprints and, you know, built a really cool demo. But like, if it's not in the hands of Warfighter, creating real outcomes in a real production environment, uh, it, it doesn't really matter. So Prodder, it didn't happen. So obviously, when you were at Kessel Run, you were working with so many different um, pieces of the Air Force as your partners. Now that you're at Rise 8, what did you take away from all those interactions, all those lessons learned from working with these partners that you're able to kind of bring um, to bear through this program to make things happen faster, to hit that mission faster, get these things in the hands of a warfighter faster? I think, you know, number one, the, the recipe for success is, is found on the government side. And so, um, you know, as much as uh, Kessel Run wouldn't exist without Pivotal Labs, um, Kessel Run also wouldn't exist without the very specific individuals that were at Kessel Run when Pivotal was there. And so uh, really finding those people that we've come across now with with all of our exposure um, that are the government change agents that will go against the incentive structure and everything to get ship done, um, that's, that's one piece. Uh, the other part's more unfortunate, or maybe fortunate in a way. This is all supposed to be about learning, but honestly, I... I <laughs> I've found a lot of humility out here on the other side in that um, a lot of the things that the software factories are putting out from like an acquisitions perspective, you know, I was um, as CEO of Kessel Run, I owned the acquisition strategy, the platform and the application development. Uh, and my COO now at Rise 8 was the, the branch chief for agile acquisitions. And so we wrote a lot of these strategies and these procurement types and challenges. Uh, and we're seeing them now from the other side. And of course, we thought, we were awesome and we had like cracked the code on agile acquisitions, but seeing it from the other side, there is so much work still to be done. And I think the most eye-opening thing for me has been that we, we are not focusing enough on the procurement side of this, um, which gets in the way of, of all of the other things that I would love to yeah. tell you that we've been able to do on the outside here is that uh, procurement is just getting in the way of the government finding and, and being able to work with folks like us, even, even when they want to, they're like, Oh, I really want to work with rise eight. And then they just can't get you on contract. Um, and I know, I know how to navigate. It's not like I'm an outsider, right? Yeah. Like I know how government acquisitions work. Uh, and we still struggle with that barrier and it's not a barrier of finding the best talent. A lot of times you, you know who the best contractor is and you can't get them. So let me ask you this then. I mean, you've been on the inside, you've been on the outside. What would, what would it, what would better look like, or what would what would best in class look like to to get these issues around procurement um, resolved? I think that the 
the biggest thing being overlooked right now is is market research. You know, we focused a lot of our acquisition innovation at Kessel Run um, just during my time there. So I won't speak for them now, um, but during my time there, we focused it around uh, you know, like coding challenges and all these things. And, and really, you know, we borrowed a lot of that from U.S. Digital Service and DDS. Um, the whole community is is kind of focusing there. And I feel like we've really lost the the market research aspect. I don't care how good of a challenge you run, how good of a proposal process you run. You just can't evaluate five different contractors, let alone 50 if you get a, you know, depending on what kind of vehicle you're going on. Uh, there's no way to decide which one's actually going to be the one that builds you a Kessel Run. In fact, uh, I would say that you're probably walking away with the opposite impression uh, of what you should when you're evaluating things on paper, even when it's paired with a coding challenge. So I think doing market research and having a better idea, um, I think competition is is overrated. I know that's like uh, blasphemy in government circles, but like I've really come to see that competition is a sham. It's gar- it is such garbage. If we could actually run meaningful competitions, I think it would be great. Like I'm a capitalist and I fully believe in competition, but what we are calling competition is not competition. It's a fool's errand. It's a game. Um, and some people know how to play it better than others. And the only thing you're getting, uh, finding out from the competition is who's the best at government proposal processes. Uh, even the best run government proposal processes, that's what you're getting. Not who's the best at, uh, you know, transforming the way that you work and, and, helping you do the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs or less. So that's one side, um, focusing more on market research. And then like, you know, if you find somebody that's really good, they don't have to be, you know, it's just worry like, well, are they the best one? It's like, I don't know if that's as important as making sure you don't get the worst one, which is probably what's going to happen in the competition. Um, and so finding innovative ways to get to the people that you have done market research on and know are the right partners for you to work with. That would be my number one piece of advice. Kind of the second one, um, which is related, is then like, how do you find? Like, there are all these companies out here. In fact, there are a bunch of offshoots of Pivotal Labs. And if I am hearing f- multiple people that were Kessel Run founders say, like, couldn't have done this without Pivotal Labs, uh, you know, Pivotal Labs got bought by VMware. Maybe you could go that route, but maybe you, for whatever reason, you know, you don't want to work with their tech stack or whatever it might be. There are all these offshoots of Pivotal Labs that are working out there, uh, you know, and like focused labs in Chicago, Artium out of uh, New York and LA, um, a whole bunch of them. Uh, and they were they were like big name folks at Pivotal that went on to start their own Pivotal Lab style consultancies. And then now you've got Rise8 who did that as well. Uh, figuring out how to find people. You know, there's like researching the people we know, but like there's all these people that we aren't seeing. So kind of two sides of the the research piece. And then maybe the last thing that I would say that's really holding folks back, even when they know what they want to do, is pricing. Um, we need to have like a serious conversation about pricing. Uh, I, I just saw a, a software factory, I probably shouldn't name it, but very recent award um, for a software factory contract. And the average hourly rate was somewhere, my estimate would be right around uh, $85 an hour. Like I, I can't even hire a car mechanic for that. I'm not disparaging car mechanics. They're worth every penny. But like, you know what I'm saying? Like you want people to build DevOps pipelines for you for $85 an hour. And so the government is really focused on total burn and total price. 
instead of price per unit of value, right? So maybe uh, someone like us charges three times the amount that you're used to paying, but we get five times as much done or, or maybe infinity times as much done because the other folks never even deliver, right? And so a price per production outcome mentality of evaluating what you're getting for the price versus looking at it as hourly is really a transition that we need to make. And honestly, even at Kessel Run, we did not do a good job of that. You might have partially already answered this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, on your LinkedIn headline, it says, we create outcomes in GovTech by rapidly delivering powerful, beautiful, and easy-to-use software. That any platform uh, with quality and reduced risk. Um, and this is, you're, you're talking about Rise 8. It seems like that's what, every government dreams of being able to do. So why is it so hard for them? Obviously procurement is is one piece of it, getting into the hands, but why is it so hard to just see what you want and go get it? Yeah, well, I mean, the first problem is that uh, al almost no contractors can do what you just said, right? So it's in our tagline. Um, and it's because a lot of it is a government problem. Like the ATO process is primarily a, a government problem, right? That's why one of the first things that we did at Kessel Run and what I, people asked me was my number one achievement there. I always say it was continuous ATO, which um, at the time, at least it's gotten more fanfare since, but like at the time, nobody even really paid attention to it. Um, that was primarily a government problem to solve. Most defense contractors hand their software to the government and then the government takes it to go through testing and cybersecurity accreditation. And then if there's issues, they send it back for rework, right? Um, so the thing is, is we've been on both sides of that. And so even when I'm working with a customer who doesn't have a continuous ATO, I can help them get it. At the end of the day, I have to work with a change agent that's going to like go do the things on the government side that need to be done because I'm the contractor. I, I literally can't affect some of those things. But um that's that's one piece is realizing that like the contractor can't solve all of your problems for you, um, but you can find somebody that can coach you through those problems. And it's not somebody that randomly worked at, at Kessel Run. You know, people are like, I mean, there's probably, I don't know, 20 contractors now that can say like, oh, I have past performance at Kessel Run. But they just put some software developers in seats there. And what you're really looking for in the government is the person that knows how to start, like launch a Kessel Run. Um, and, and we're not the only ones, right? But there are very few folks that know that process. Um, and, and then the other piece is it's really hard because in the beginning, you don't know what you're asking for. Uh, and you, so like the goal at Kessel Run, we started out with more of a time and materials mentality. Uh, and my goal, which I didn't get to before we left, it was something we were looking at it. Like we said, the three to five year mark. Uh, we wanted to start switching to more of a firm fixed price um, per outcome mentality in our acquisition strategy, right? But the problem is right now, I see a lot of folks um, that are starting out with that and they don't know what they want or need yet. And they lock themselves into really bad things. And then the pricing and the procurement process still do get in their way um, in a major way. And I think it's because, you know, going back to traditional acquisitions, there are so many acquisitions officers that I came across that had been in for 15 to 20 years that had never actually seen an acquisition from beginning to end. 
In fact, I came across tons of people who had never built an acquisition strategy. They always showed up at a duty assignment and it was in the middle of a five to eight year procurement, right? And so you start to run into those kinds of problems as well. And I think it's really important early on, um, like those folks just don't have the scars of like, oh, well, maybe I'll, you know, this person costs 30% less. So, you know, maybe it'll be 30% slower, but it'll still be fast. And it's like, no, it won't be 30% slower. It's, it's, you can't even measure it. It's going to be infinity slower. It's never going to deliver. Like it's going to fail because something like, uh, you know, 80, is it 80, uh, 84% of federal IT projects are over schedule or over budget. Um, and, and a crazy amount never actually deliver a single thing, right? And so that's the reality that we're working in. And people are, are just, uh, you know, not, not looking at the bigger picture. Before we wrap, there, there's one question I definitely have to ask. You mentioned um, that continuous ATO was one of the things you were most proud of, but you regret the name. So <laughs> have you given any thought to what you would have named it if you could go back and and rename it yeah absolutely so uh uh paul puckett actually you had paul on oh, your show a while paul, back. paul and i went to high school together yeah we're good <laughs> friends yeah yeah uh so he he worked with us at kessel run he was um he was at nga when we were launching our first apps he was one of the platform folks that helped us launch our apps uh then was at pivotal and worked with us um so he, he's been a, a good friend and an ally and somebody that really gets this space and uh you know, he and I were lamenting the continuous ATO, and it was right when he was starting with Ekman. He asked me to give a talk to uh, his team and to Army leadership about that, and, and I came up with the concept of continuous RMF, which isn't a huge change, but it, the subtle shift there is that in continuous ATO, it, it puts the focus on the ATO, like, oh, we have this ATO that never expires, and some of the behaviors that I saw happen, which are partly because of the name and also partly just because, you know, we don't always do the best job of documenting and transferring knowledge is that folks were essentially getting a waiver to not do RMF. Like getting tenure. Yeah. Or, or worse. Like, cause at least the tenure professor worked for 10 years first. Like these folks were just jumping straight out of the gate without doing some pretty basic RMF, uh, fundamentals. And, uh, I'm not anti-RMF, right? My whole goal with continuous ATO at Kessel Run was, can I make RMF run concurrent with the DevOps lifecycle? Meaning, can I do everything that RMF requires of me and still deliver daily? And uh, we were able to achieve that, right? And it can be done. And so I went with continuous RMF uh, as, as the name that I use now when I work with clients. And really, even when you look at the continuous ATO memo for Kessel Run, the original one that Lauren signed back in, April of 2017, I think is, yeah, April 2017. It, um, uh, sorry, April 2018. Uh, it, it doesn't even say continuous ATO anywhere in there except for one reference, which was uh, like a presentation that I had built um, called the continuous ATO concept brief. But it, it actually referenced an authorization type in RMF known as ongoing authorization. And so um, if you really dig into ongoing authorization, I would tell anybody, like, don't call your thing a continuous ATO, especially now because DOD CIO has like a memo out about all these uh, like processes with, with continuous ATO. Look, any AO can, can do an ongoing authorization. Um, everything that's in that CIO memo is, is really good, solid foundational things you need to be doing. But like 
you should be able to do this with your AO uh, and just understanding an ongoing authorization. So I would either call it continuous RMF uh, or an ongoing authorization for DevOps. So there you go. Anybody listening who has control over renaming, you have, <laughs> you have an option right there. Hey, Brian, thanks again for joining the show today. This was, this was great. I think we covered a lot of good topics and there's some really good, to me, there's some really good advice there for, for even, even at, at the lowest levels of government, whether you're DOD, Fed, Civ, just being able to implement a culture of change. I think there's some really good advice that you gave within there. Um, before we wrap up, any final thoughts you want to leave with our audience? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, speaking especially to the government folks out there and, and people that work with government, you know, uh, there is a really important study that was put out by Google called the Aristotle Project. Highly recommend checking it out. Four out of the five things are things that we're awesome at in government, like mission, purpose, those types of things. One that we're really not good at is, is psychological safety. Um, and that term gets uh, used and elicits eye rolls from some, but I, I would encourage you to really look at, at what it means, which is that you know people are able to share their ideas um, and, and be vulnerable, uh, which is a requirement for learning and failing fast and all of these things that we value. Um, if we can figure out how to crack the nut in the federal government and especially the military on creating psychological safety, uh, we can really accelerate our DevOps learning journey because it's still a learning journey. Everybody, even Kessel Run, is still figuring things out. And the moment that we lose safety, we lose learning. So uh, that's my plea to everyone working in this space. I think that's a really good point because I think the government of, of any industry is one that prioritizes the need for diversity in, in all different demographics, but maybe they struggle the most with allowing that diversity and the diversity of thought to really take shape mm -hmm. um, and, and make change for the institution. So I think that's, that's a really good point. Yeah, awesome. Hey, Brian, thanks again for joining the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast or wherever you access yours. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Shittestray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.